Scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be reading the first two verses. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. Well, before we come to this text together, let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you again for Jesus and his propitiation, his very person. Thank you that he's our whole hope. He's our all in all. He's the one that you bring us to. He's the one we're being conformed into the likeness. We pray that you will do that more and more here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So despite all the world's continual lies to the contrary, the only real issue in the universe of fallen humans that must be addressed by everyone is the problem of sin. That is the problem. All of our troubles, bar none, are a result of sin, which began in the Garden of Eden. Adam's sin was the original sin. We're all um, in him. And so when we are conceived, we're conceived as rebellious, God-hating sinners. And so sin is a big problem. The failure to recognize this fact that sin is the problem is the reason for the proliferation of idolatry and deception on our profoundly disturbed planet. Because sinners refuse to acknowledge the real problem, the problem of sin, even though they're completely engulfed in it like fish in the sea, they, even we, in our unregenerate states, devise all kinds of other supposed scapegoat-like reasons for the calamities that accost all of us every day in a fallen universe. And these straw men take different forms in different countries at different times. But in our day, in our country, our land, they tend to range from things like environmental extremism or idolatry. Not that we're to be not to be good stewards, we are, but that becomes an all-consuming religion, to so-called social justice, which is little more than a comical farce, and yet the true church needs to take uh, justice seriously. But if by God's grace alone we come to be made willing and able to be honest about the real problems in the world and in our own hearts, and every other thing affected by sin, then there is the prospect for great joy, hope, life, grace, and every other good thing in the person of our blessed Messiah, Jesus Christ our Lord, alone. So in light of this, let us make it our goal the Sabbath day to be flabbergasted by the love of God in Christ Jesus. We're studying together 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The answer to the sin problem, if you wish to use the, the outline, we start here. The doctrine, Jesus Christ is the only answer to the sin problem. How important is that doctrinal statement, dear saints? It's really important. Jesus Christ is the only answer to the sin problem. 
There is no other answer. But there's this eminently exciting fact is that Jesus being the answer to the sin problem is not mostly negative. In fact, it's mostly positive. And this gets really exciting, especially in today's text. Being able to see the sin problem is a huge monumental miracle in itself. Being able to understand it takes a work of God's sovereign grace. Being able to perceive God's answer to the sin problem, namely the person of Jesus Christ and his blood atonement and resurrection, is even a greater and more profound blessing. As members of the true and faithful church, let us unashamedly and boldly profess, hold, and believe that Jesus Christ is the only answer to the sin problem. First, which is a monumental, universal one. That is, the sin problem is a monumental and universal one. The sin problem is so ubiquitous, i.e., everywhere, and so pervasive, i.e., affecting everyone and everything, that we as sinners cannot even see it, feel it, or realize it, even though it encompasses us at every turn in every way. Really, the same may be said about so-called atheism. God's existence is so patently obvious through his creation that we cannot even conceive of what it would mean to live in an atheistic universe, which, of course, is an impossibility to exist if there is something God had to necessarily be made it. Now, there's almost anyone with any sense can tell that there's something wrong with the world. I mean, even complete unbelievers seem to acknowledge this fact. I suppose there's still people around that say human beings are basically good. I mean, that, that statement is ridiculous, but... If you don't have God, you're stuck with having to try to live with it, despite all the evidence to the contrary. But almost everybody can see that there's a problem with the world. It's broken. But it actually takes a miracle of God's grace in Jesus Christ to believe that the true cause is our fallen human's universal rebellion against our Creator. That's the real problem. That's what we call sin, original sin. And this is one of the major reasons that you and I do not, now get this, do not need to take too seriously all the hype in the world today, whether it's coming from religion, media, entertainment, sodomy, perversions of various sorts, or apostasy, in religion. We need to be aware of it. We need to, to fight against it. We need to bring it down. We need to destroy it, especially in our prayers. But we need not need fear it or give it our all in all. All of those postulations, answers, and demands put upon us, especially the Church of God, are spurious, idolatrous, and worthless and we don't need to submit to them. 
So keep that in mind. Jesus Christ is the only answer to the sin problem, which is a monumental universal one, and which is one that may be perfectly rectified in the Messiah's blood alone. Children rectified means fixed or made well, if you will. And this is where this doctrine gets really almost unbelievably thrilling beyond belief. In other words, because of the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God actually uses sin to fully and perfectly glorify himself and to bring to the objects of his grace, i.e. elect and then in time and space redeemed sinners, the greatest possible good in this world and in the world to come. Now, we might be sitting today or standing and declaring, how can this be? How can this be? Since sin is so awful and so horrible and so bad. And the answer is only an inscrutably wonderful, wise, gracious, and fabulous God could even conceive of this, let alone achieve it, which he did and does in Christ Jesus. Now, what we are actually saying today is that this amazing God of ours takes what is totally horrible and abominable, namely sin, and ends up employing it for goals that could never, ever be attained if sin didn't exist in the world. That's amazing, dear saints. And those goals or ends are his greater glory in Jesus Christ and his elect church's fullest and best good in Jesus Christ. Let's look at the text, verses 1 and 2, 1 John 2. And be wise to how faithful church members are to handle sin. So here we are, like fish in the water, sins all around us all the time. We can't get away from it in a fallen world. So, what are we to do about it? Good question. Now, what we mean by this, handling sin, is how are we to think about it and deal with it, this terrible thing called sin? And it is a terrible thing. Now, by the term faithful church members, that should be interpreted by you as regenerate Christians who love God in Jesus Christ. And if we are blessed to be numbered among that elite group, then, by God's grace alone in Jesus, we actually have a particular, and I might say peculiar, perspective on sin, which is likely to surprise us and the world if it will hear us. So let us better learn how faithful church members are to handle sin. First, by viewing it as our greatest enemy, verse 1a. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, uh, if you've been in this First John series, you might remember from the first chapter that John told us another reason he wrote this book. Now, this is the second time in a very short period that he tells us why he wrote this epistle of 1 John. And his rationale here is that we, quote, may not sin. So he says, hey, I'm writing this letter to this 
group of churches, Christians in general, remember we call this a Catholic epistle or a universal epistle, a general epistle, it's not written to one particular church, and and the gentle, philosophical, angelic, and yet thunder-filled pastor, Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, who is close to Jesus, says, I'm writing this to you so that, you little children, he says, so that you may not sin. But like any good church shepherd, be it an apostle, a pastor, a ruling elder, a deacon, or other mature members of the church, John knew that the recipients of his letter would sin. And he was aware of that. Uh, No responsible pastor leader would, would think otherwise. He knew that they would sin. And he's going to deal with that fact very shortly. But still, why would John urge Christians not to sin? Good question. Because he knew, even from personal experience, and some of his sins are recorded in the gospel accounts, even as it's true for us in our personal experience, he knew how dangerous and devastating sin is. And it is. You know, the Puritans were famous for teaching that faithful Christian church members should fear two entities, only two, and they shouldn't fear anyone or anything else. And those two entities that Christians are to fear are God and sin. Not the devil, not the government, not persecutors, not evildoers, not people that hate us, not disease, not pandemics, not disasters, not the things the world fears. We're to fear God and sin. I have come to agree with them, and I hope you do too. And therefore, it is honestly for very good reason that the Apostle John encourages his Christian brothers and sisters in verse 1, quote, not to sin. Sinning, dears, to put it in the colloquial, is extremely hazardous to our health, our well-being, and our happiness. And it really is. Don't ever forget that. There is no sugarcoating sin here. It is the worst thing in the universe. It's terrible. And it doesn't just affect us, it affects everyone else. How faithful church members are to handle sin? Well, first, view it as our greatest enemy, And next, by marveling at the incredible greatness of our Christ, verse 1b. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I would say that these few words of verse 1b are some of the finest ever penned in the history of the world. John is saying here, look, sin is a very bad idea and a very bad thing, but... When it does happen, and it will, there is a remedy for it that is supernal, marvelous, and blessed almost beyond belief and words. Now, dears, the obvious question is, does this mean that we should sin 
so as to experience the wonder of God and Jesus Christ, even as Paul himself had to deal with that very question in Romans 6, 1, should we sin that so grace may increase? And the obvious answer there is, may genoito, God forbid, may it never be. No, we shouldn't sin for this reason. John has already taught us very clearly in the first verse that sin is to be avoided as much as we can in the power of the Spirit. So the regenerated Christian church member, I'm not talking about independent Christians that are too good for the church or Christ or any of that. If they know all their Bible and theology and all that, we're not talking them. We're talking about regular, real saints of the church. We live in a strange vortex of seeming contradictions, which indeed are not contradictions. On one hand, it is definitely in our best interest to avoid sin. There's no question about that. Never forget it. And yet, on the other hand, if and when we sin, assuming we sincerely love God in Jesus Christ, and desire to be cleansed of our sin when we do it, and confess and receive absolution, and desire to repent of our sin. If all those things are true, then believe it or not, we experience even a greater blessing. How is this glorious gospel truth to be explained? That is not an easy thing to do. Paul attempted it and did very well and chapter 6 of Romans and elsewhere. But it is true, this much is for sure, the God who could and did orchestrate such a fantastic arrangement in the blood, righteousness, and justification of his Son, Jesus Christ, is great beyond measure and receives the praise of every creature, whether it's willing or not. And rightly so. Jesus Christ, the righteous, quote-unquote, in this verse, is our advocate, our representative, our substitute, the propitiation or the satisfaction for all of our sins. The sins of the elect church. How faithful church members are to handle sin first, by viewing it as our greatest enemy, next by marveling at the incredible greatness of our Christ. Finally, by recognizing that Jesus is the world's only hope, verse 2. He, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, is John in... Verse 2b, teaching universal atonement, the sins of the whole world. Was Elder Ken wrong a few weeks ago when he preached from definite or particular or sometimes we call limited atonement? Was he off base? Was he mistaken? Is John negating that and saying, no, no, the sins of all the world. Is that what John means? Or the second part of verse 2? No. He doesn't mean that, definitely not. And we know he doesn't mean it for a lot of reasons. One of them is because his own writings clearly make that obvious, like John chapter 6 and many other places, where 
he actually teaches particular atonement. What John is primarily teaching us here in brief and among other things in verse 2 is that Jesus' propitiation or satisfaction for sin will, get this now, will be experienced by elect human beings in time and space who are spread over the entire globe of the planet called Earth, a fallen place, who come from every conceivable tribe, nation, race, or people group, but who, get this, but who have not yet received it. That's what he means. Look at it again. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's what he means, primarily, right there. Keep in mind the overall context. A lot of times when we interpret a verse like that, it's helpful to keep the context in mind. Whether we believe that John the Apostle wrote this before 70 AD, which I still pretty much believe, or as some scholars think he wrote it way later in the 90s, doesn't matter, it was the first century. And in the first century, granted, the gospel had spread like crazy, but we're talking mostly about the Roman Empire. I mean, over here in Peoria County, 2,000 years ago, there was no gospel proclaimer here yet. The land that we're worshiping on was probably dedicated to all kinds of demons and idols and things like that. The gospel has spread like crazy since then. But the fact is that when John wrote these words, there was a lot more ground to cover. And I might say there's still a lot more ground to cover, and some of the ground that was covered needs to be reclaimed, if you will, for the only one who owns it. That's Jesus Christ and his church. So I think John is also secondarily, meaning by his words of verse 2, which were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the gospel, get this, is really sincerely good news for all people. I mean, never forget that. We don't know who the elect are. We have no idea. The gospel is good news for everyone. Every animal, every being, everything, every rock, every part of God's creation. The gospel is good news for everyone. Whether it is availed of or not, it's still good news. The only good news. And this much we absolutely know for certain. There is no hope for a world in sin, captivated in sin, slaves to the devil. There is no hope for the world outside of the person and work of the glorious Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, whom we are here in and worshiping God through today. I might also say regarding verse 2 that John is affirming, I think, in this verse, that the power of Jesus Christ's atonement to forgive sins is actually capable of remitting any and every sin. Though we know from many other places, as mentioned even in John's writings, that the remission for sins is only applied to God's elect people that make up his faithful church who in time and space experience that grace beyond means and measure and wonder, that most sublime blessing, and then become members of the church, the body of Christ. Well, there's our doctrine, there's our exegesis of the text. Let's do some more application this morning. It's really exciting. 
And finally, understand why sin is both an abomination to us and yet something that cannot condemn us. Or to put it another way, we might consider why sin is so awful and yet because of it, God gets to show us his greatest levels of love, mercy, and grace all in Jesus Christ alone. It is truly remarkable and curious that we may even contemplate the awe-inspiring question and issue of why sin is both an abomination to us and yet something that cannot condemn us. First, because love for God causes his church to want to please him. Now this point covers the first part of the equation, why sin is an abomination to us. Love drives everything. Remember, love is the key engine of every heart. It's all about love. What do we, who do we love? So we love God, then we love the church, and we love ourselves, and we love other human beings. We don't want sin, even though we do. We do. Every true redeemed saint of God's church really does hate sin. Do you know that about yourself? You know, if you received absolution and your sins are cleansed today, really? Do you know that you hate sin? Rightly so, too. Of course, we're taught not to hate anything, right? But that's ridiculous. Everybody does. And we, if we're going to love God, we do hate sin. It's not an option. Be good haters, dears. But be even better lovers. Because love drives everything. By our new and heavenly natures in Christ, we fight against sin in ourselves, our own hearts first. Don't forget that. It starts there. In our congregation, as beautiful and blessed as it is, in our families, in our communities, in our culture, and in our world, we have no option but to fight against sin. We're either fighting against it or we're already slain on the battlefield by it. There are no other options. And yet, the whole and highest reason for this loathing of sin in us is love. The reason we hate sin is because of love. Love first for God in Jesus Christ, love second for his church, and love third for fallen human beings all over the place. Why, this is why John opened chapter 2 of 1 John with these words of verse 1a, which we already studied, studied. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, that encouragement is really great. It really is. But there's something even higher. We're going to look at it now. Why sin is both an abomination to us and yet something that cannot condemn us? Because love for God causes his church to want to please him. But forgiven sinners are God's grandest trophies of his love. This is actually true. There's this theology I'm going to teach you now in this last point, almost done. It's just amazing. It really is. Any one of you atoned for Redeemerites in this church worship auditorium today who have all your sins washed away in the blood righteousness and justification of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, Any one of you, 
even the smallest among you, even the weakest, even the one who has the least amount of assurance of their salvation, but is faithful in Christ in his church. Any one of you are greater objects of God's love than Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden before they fell into sin. That's the truth. You're actually in a better spot, in a state of grace, than even they were before they fell into sin. This is an amazing truth, dears. So sin, that awful and horrible and terrible thing, becomes the impetus for God to demonstrate his fullest, highest, and most glorious nature of love, grace, and mercy. Have you ever thought about that? Now consider this with me, dears. Before God created the universe, you understand there was a, time is not the right word, but there was a time before God created the universe. Because we're limited in our ability to speak. Before God created the universe, and we don't know, well that was a long time, from all the way back, we do know that. Before God created the universe, this kind of unspeakable love was never demonstrated except among the three persons of the Holy Trinity. Except they didn't need mercy, they didn't need grace, they just lived in perfect love, even as they do now. So before the creation of the universe, this kind of love was never demonstrated. And it was known only to the three persons of the Holy Trinity because they were the only beings that existed. But even, get this now, even for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, before the creation and before the fall, this love, grace, and mercy was never demonstrated. Have you ever wondered why God created the universe? This is the reason God created the universe. Have you ever wondered why God let people fall into sin, this awful and terrible thing? This is the reason. So that, now, thanks to sin of all things, let's just say it, thanks to the existence of sin, God is able to show to demonstrate this infinitely great grace through his Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity who became a human being, Chalcedonian Creed, undivided, etc. You just read it. Jesus Christ our Lord. He did it via his bloody atonement for sin and sinners rising from the dead. How great is this God? You ever wonder about him? This is it. This is, this is the whole thing right here. What a great, marvelous God we serve. Truly he is the father of all the elect. Through Jesus Christ. Marvelous God. Beloved, the answer to the sin problem is available for everyone. Oh, sinners will continue to create new 
straw men problems and just prop them up for a while and then self-righteously think they're the great saviors of the world who are going to take care of everything. That's just normal. Don't be intimidated by that. The real answer to the sin problem is Jesus Christ. Never take the bait of the world and believe that anyone or anything but Jesus Christ is the answer to the sin problem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us an answer to the sin problem. Huge problem, Lord. And yet you even use that to be able to demonstrate the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God to sinners, undeserving, vile, wretched sinners like us who now have been brought into your church, elect, redeemed, blessed. We still struggle with our sin, Lord. We don't like it either. We know it's our worst enemy. We know that. Help us to love you more and more. We know that's the answer. Be more conformed to the image of Christ day by day, Lord's day to Lord's day. It's just a process. Help us grow. May we be content with this program of yours. All in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.